Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and with me today is Dr. Art Kaplan. Arthur Kaplan is well-known internationally, and certainly you may have seen him on any of the talk shows. He is an ethicist, a medical ethicist, who talks about issues that, in fact, many of us, and certainly in primary care, we have a whole bunch of them and a lot of things we can talk about. Um, Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. Dr. Kaplan, my first question, and something that I know a lot of people are curious about, is genetics in medicine, and we hear so much about how the primary care doctor is going to have a toolkit where they're going to be able to take samples and find out what diseases a person is going to have down the road, and clearly we're starting to see some of this already. What is the impact of this, and how do you see it ethically and as far as primary care doctors doing the best for their patients? Well, it's a great question, Brian, because I think it hasn't really burst into primary care yet, but it is coming, and it's coming on two fronts. One that we get a lot of noise about, which is risk analysis, what sorts of conditions, diseases, disabilities might you be especially prone to. One of the interesting things about this, obviously, is that nobody passes this particular test. Everybody's got risk factors. We're all mortal. I sometimes have to remind my med students, you know, this is a test that you can't pass. No matter what you do, we'll find some risk factors. So in one sense, we have to calm people down a little bit and say, hey, you know, we can tell you what you're at risk of or what you're at risk of, but everybody's at risk of something. It doesn't mean you're flawed or somehow deficient. The other area besides risk is trying to match medicines to people's biology. So we know we get a lot of people with side effects or other people, medicine doesn't work, they take it, they're compliant, but they don't don't get help with their headaches or their impotence or whatever it is that troubles them. And clearly, there's a biological reason for that. The mapping of the genome, more genetic information should let us fine-tune information about what drugs are going to work, whether it's Coumadin or something else, to the particular patient's biology. So those are all good things. Ethically, what's troubling? Well, for one thing, you've got to start to master risk information. And, you know, Brian, I know you're an expert on probability and statistics and a wizard of numbers, and uh, patients are not. (laughs) And they get out there and you start telling them you have double the risk of this or three times the risk of that, and they don't understand it. We've got to get better at how we communicate information to make sure they can get informed choices. Second big issue, how much spin do we put into it? So I could tell you, well, you're at risk of diabetes. And I look at this genome and it says there's trouble ahead for you if you don't lose some weight. But should I really push harder because they're in a category where they're really at risk of diabetes? Do I yell at them? Do I sort of, you know, coerce them? How far do I pressure as the primary care doctor knowing now that I've got somebody with a high susceptibility of trouble for a particular disorder? Or do I just give them the information and let them change their lifestyle or not as they see fit? Third big issue, When you do genetic testing, you're finding out things about other people, their children, their biological relatives. And so when you find out something, well, let me give you a case. We had a case come up recently. A guy came in for testing, wanted to find out if he had Huntington's disease risk. He didn't. That was the good news. Bad news was the guy he thought was his father wasn't. We could pick up non-paternity. Sensitive information comes up like that in genetics, and the physician is going to have to be prepared to counsel about it, to explain it. 
So there's really a lot of things we have to think about and, and as primary care doctors be aware of. I'm talking with Dr. R. Kaplan. He's the Dr. William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Professor and Head of the Division of Bioethics at New York University Langone Medical Center. Prior to that, he's well known for his work at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And prior to that, he was in Minnesota, University of Pittsburgh, and started out at Columbia. And could you have envisioned when you were back at Columbia the changes we've seen in medicine and the, the questions that have been answered. I know in my years in television, many times I would turn to you and ask you questions about so many topics or watch you on Nightline or other programs addressing these issues. There have been so many things over these past years. It has to be pretty amazing to have gone through it. You know, I remember, barely, but I do remember, just about the time that ICUs really started to gear up. Today, you know, even a primary care doc is going to spend some amount of time trying to manage all the technology of these specialty units. When I get into the ICU setting in the hospital, I am, I don't say it, but I'm amazed. We have all kinds of technology that can prolong life. We've got uh, machines that can replicate the function of the kidney. We've got machines that can replicate the function of the heart. We've got all kinds of blood pressure meds we're throwing around. We've got powerful antibiotics. It is amazing what can be done. People who absolutely would have been dead when I first walked through the doors of the Columbia Medical School, they're going on and on and on. So that's a startling fact about technology and medicine. The other thing that I find surprising is people are just living longer. And so I remember the population that was there 30 years ago. People used to think about having a geriatric specialty because, if you will, there were relatively few people who were older. Today, the average internist or family medicine person can see a lot of old people because they're just a lot of old people. I'm not sure there can be a specialty of geriatrics in the sense in which in primary care you've got to deal with a population that's aging and we're keeping them alive. Medicine has helped them. So that's an amazing fact, too. So you do all of these things. You see all of these things. What would you say over the past years has been the, I'd say, the toughest ethical dilemma that you, you saw or faced? Toughest ethical dilemma for me, I know what it is. It's dealing with what to do with premature babies. We used to say a baby who was born at 28, 29 weeks was premature. Now, today, we're down at 23, 24 weeks. We know we can keep some of those kids alive. We know that many of them are going to have severe disabilities. We also know that when they're born, many of them are unexpected in terms of the prematurity. The parents are flabbergasted, they're, they're despondent, they're very much disarmed in terms of being able to make decisions, and we've got to make some very hard choices with the parents turning to us to do the right thing, and as it sometimes happens, then the neonatologists and neonatal nurses return to me and say, well, what do you think we ought to do with this kid with this disability and this kind of vulnerability and prematurity? Those are just miserably hard questions because I think, you know, we all morally pull for that kid to live, and we want to make sure that we try hard to give him that opportunity. And at the same time, you're thinking, boy, if this child goes home with four other kids and has a really severe disability, and I know the numbers on divorce and what that can do to a household, where are they going to be? I think those are the hardest ones for me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Again, I'm with Dr. Art Kaplan, and we're talking about ethics, ethical issues in medicine. And one of the things that's come up recently, and I know I see it in my role as a chief medical information officer, I'm getting more involved on the IT side and 
We're realizing mm-hmm. we can communicate with patients. And one of the things that's coming out, uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, uh, who are practicing, um, if you haven't gone to Meaningful Use Stage 2, it's the patient portal. It's an opportunity for patients to get records, to get data, mm-hmm. to get information. Mm-hmm. There's an argument going on right now. Should patients be given unfiltered labs, unfiltered reports, unfiltered data that they can do with as they wish, or should the physicians be holding on to it as they traditionally have, calling them with positive results or explaining it? Where do you fall on that? Because I've heard some people say we absolutely just give it to the patients. I've heard other people say, I don't know, you're dealing with some difficult diagnoses. You better make sure they're prepared for it. You know, I just, it's funny you ask that, Brian, because I just did my HIPAA training, <laughs> annual training today, and the law says patients can get their medical records, patients can get a copy of, you know, medical information. However, it doesn't really say whether it is edited or interpreted. I fall on the side of interpretation and help for the patient. I think throwing raw data at them, throwing sort of coarse information at them it's not empowering them, and it's not helping them, and it can frighten or scare them. I believe that doctors have the professional skills to help interpret that information. I'm not against patients seeing their records. I'm not against people being able to take that information to others and get second opinions. But I think throwing raw data at people, uncooked, just doesn't do them any good. I worry about that a lot. So I come down pretty hard on the... They need, a, they need help when they're looking at all the different physiological measurements or genetic measurements or different types of things we can now give to them. They have to have it interpreted. Now, those who say the opposite, in many cases, seem to be getting their way. They're looking at costs. Mm-hmm. They're looking at where do you see it shaking out from your perspective? Obviously, you're at NYU, but you, you kind of have your finger on the pulse, so to speak, of a lot of these things. What do you see happening ultimately? I, I think I'm losing. <laughs> I think uh, what's happening is people are saying, I want to have access to the raw information. What are you hiding? What are you covering up? Are you making mistakes that you don't want me to see? Are you casting aspersions against me, impugning me as a patient? I want to see this. I want to see this. So what we see happening, I'm afraid, is more and more just throw the gates open and dump the information on out there. I still believe it's a mistake. I still believe... You know, it's like looking at raw information about anything. If you're trying to understand your automobile and you didn't have a mechanic to interpret some of it, I think you'd be in trouble. If you looked at a contract and you didn't have a lawyer to advise you, if you looked at numbers and you didn't have an accountant to help you, I think people need some counseling and some assistance with complex information. But I think I'm losing that one. You know, it's funny. You talk about the fact that patients will say, you know, what are you saying about me? I was talking to a patient about that. I said, Really, I just want to get home. I, the last thing I want to do is be typing in some bad things about you. <laughs> I, uh, and not that you're not important to me, but why? I mean, what purpose is there to do that? I, and it, it's and even of, if I thought it, why would I ever write it down anyway? Right. And it's funny, as you think about the time that's gone on in medicine, I'm naive enough to remember the days when you really wrote a note in the hospital not to get paid for documentation excellence, not to be given yeah, to a patient. Yeah. It was more to find out. The next day to the next doctor what you did that day so they could catch on and use that mm-hmm, information mm-hmm. or whether the patient, the nurse said they had a bowel movement or not the night before. It was just information right, being right. spread. But now it has literally become a legal document where you're, you're watching every word. And I think there's too much fear of the law in medical practice. I, I sometimes have to say to folks, look, I know 
that you're worried that if you don't do every test imaginable, someone's going to come along and file a suit. And there's truth in that. I'm not saying it isn't so, but that isn't the way to practice. That isn't the way to do the best medicine. The best medicine is to let some judgment and some interpretation and some professional expertise come in. I worry that we're getting too much of a law-driven medicine rather than a patient-oriented medicine. And you see so much of that. In fact, when you're talking about documents and records, one of the things I point to is, for instance, an X-ray. I could X-ray somebody or have an X-ray done of someone's arm, and the the reading will be, you know, you're just trying to find out is there a fracture, but the reading will be mm-hmm. cannot exclude this, cannot exclude that, make mm-hmm. sure we don't mm-hmm. exclude this. So if somebody gets that, they're going to go, cancer? Where, where, where was cancer in here? And without that perspective of, oh, no, they're covering themselves from a legal perspective, that also bleeds into the records. Absolutely right. So we're, it's funny you should say that. We're doing a study right now of radiologists and how they handle incidental findings. And they often refer them back to the primary care person and sort of say, you know, deal with it. Here it is. Uh, I see a ground glass this. I see a weird shape that. Um, that's great. And there can be dialogue between the radiologists or the imagers or the pathologists and the primary care people. But to put that into the hands of the patient makes no sense because all you're going to do is scare the living daylight. <laughs> They're going to see 10 things that can't be ruled out on the average x-ray and think, I'm doomed, and that isn't what the radiologist was just was trying to say. So, uh, again, without that intermediary in there to help interpret what's going on, I think just giving information isn't empowering to people. Time for about one more question. And the way I actually tracked you down at NYU was sitting home, watching a ball game, playing around on Twitter. And I said, oh, Art Kaplan's on Twitter. <laughs> and I followed through. <laughs> and then, you know, and I reached out to you. We got in contact. It was it was a nice thing. And I, I bump into a lot of people that way. So obviously both of us are on Twitter. We think right. it might be a good thing. But what about the ethical side of this. Like, for instance, I'm not making medical comments except the, the obvious don't text when you're driving, mm-hmm. don't smoke cigarettes, the basic stuff, but I try to stay out of the other stuff. Are there dangers in social media as you see it from an ethical standpoint? I, I see them. I see doctors Facebook friending their patients. I've seen uh, people using email to send out personal health information. That's all trouble. I think you got to be treating the social media as not the forum to really be dealing with your uh, patients. I understand there's room in medicine for telemedicine or remote medicine, but it's encrypted and it's in a formal relationship. I like being friends with patients. I like being friends with people, my colleagues and peers, but not for the purposes of medicine. It's funny, my one time uh, being exposed on Twitter was on a local television program where one of the sportscasters I had with the Philadelphia Eagles, it was a case where there was a player who had obviously been concussed, was on the field, and I tweeted, <clears throat> get him off the field. It's obviously, it's obvious he had a concussion. And wouldn't you know it, they used that later in a broadcast. Well, even Dr. McDonough right. knew that, and right. it led to a whole spiral of things where I came out and said, yes, it's true, but the reality was you've got to be really careful because you have to stand behind what you say, and really, are you the person to have said it when you're watching on a television screen? Right, and you're, you may be a fan, but they're still going to hear you as a doc, so saying I'm doing a diagnosis from my armchair may not be the best <laughs> position you want to be in relative to how others are going to interpret that. So for those listening out there in practice, believe me, don't make mistakes and, and you know do that. You have to be really careful and be very careful about photos, all those sorts of things. And yeah. Dr. R. Kaplan, I want to thank you for joining us. And by the hey, way, my pleasure. it's been great. And if you've missed part of this discussion, 
please visit ReachMD.com slash primary care today to download the podcast and learn more on the series. Again, thanks for listening. And Dr. Kaplan, once again, thanks a lot. 